I've entitled this, the book of Exodus, Things Are A-Changing. Because in this book, what happens is we go from a family, Abraham's family, Jacob's family, to a nation. God had made that promise to both of them. And during the book of Exodus, he is going to fulfill that promise in spite of the oppression, the hardship, the slavery, and all of the other things that are done against the children of Israel, the Israelites. He's going to do that. The, book, the, the word Exodus, you may already know, it simply means a going out. We use it. The word exit is... That's a place to go out. By the way, I hope you never have to use those, but they're there just in case you need them. If the place is on fire or whatever, you might want to head that direction. It also comes from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. They did that in Egypt, believe it or not, Alexandria, Egypt. Uh, So we, as we look at the book of Exodus, we start in Egypt and then we will be leaving Egypt. As we get into it, I just want to do give you, do want to give you a little bit of a background so you kind of understand the full context of the book of Exodus. Basically, two uh, portions of it. The first one has to do with the history of bondage and deliverance of Egypt, or um, Israel from Egypt. It is what we normally think of when we think of the book of Exodus. Because the people were enslaved, and the second half, and this is the half where you can get bogged down, but it is a lot of good information that even is helpful for us today. For example, the second part of that, starting approximately at at Mount Sinai when God gave the Ten Commandments and all the other commandments that he gave at that time, it tells us how to worship God. Worshiping God is not some haphazard thing. God said there are only certain ways, and we also know that it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ, that we can come to God. We cannot simply do whatever we want to do and call it worship. There is a pattern to that. God is very clear. We see that the, ta- the tabernacle, and all the other things that go with that. We also see that God had a standard. We might call it a constitution or a covenant with his people, which are now a nation, of how to govern and how to be a nation, how to be a country. And the last part is how people can interact with each other in a peaceable way. In other words, how do I get along with my neighbor without irritating them? What do I do if the neighbor's dog keeps biting everybody? Is there, is there a biblical principle that deals with that? It doesn't talk about dogs, but it does talk about oxen. We will see a lot of things that have very practical implications for us even today. Do we live under the law? No. Are the principles of the law many times universal principles? The answer is absolutely yes. And as we look at those two things, the first section, uh, the first 18 chapters, there is redemption of the children, the people of Israel from bondage and slavery. This book is going to say, no matter what in your life is holding you in bondage, holding you down, holding you in slavery, there is hope. In this case, it was a whole nation of people who were in slavery. 
But I got to tell you that a lot of people today, including Christians, are living in bondage to all kinds of things. And it doesn't have to be Egyptians with whips making you build storage cities. It's drugs and alcohol and the things of this world hold us in slavery. We're going to see that there is deliverance. There is redemption from those things. This is a precise account of God's working among the people of Israel. It is amazing that God gives us so many details uh, in the book of Exodus that are very relevant. And we can look at it and say, this isn't some fanciful account. It's not a fantasy. It is real historical information. In fact, is I already mentioned that I spent the last two months doing background in the book of Exodus. And what I found out is that when you study what is going on in secular history, what they found out through archaeology and all those things, guess what? The Bible is right. There are people, and I remember this in my lifetime, that Moses could not have written this. I will spend time on this. By the way, the first place the whole concept of writing uh, shows up in the Bible is the book of Exodus, and it has to do with the giving of the Ten Commandments. Moses, could he read and write? People said, Moses couldn't have written this. This has to be some, you know, handed down fairy tale kind of thing. No, Moses could read and write. We'll look at that later. All kinds of things that we look at. Did Egypt exist the way the Bible says it did? The answer is yes. When you look these things up, uh, archaeology, every time they find something, it proves the Bible was right all along, including timetables and all that kind of thing. And so we'll look at those. And once again, we're going to see that God chooses to use people to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. He had in the past used people like Noah to save eight people. He had used Abraham to begin a family and give promises, unconditional promises to, that actually had to do with people being enslaved in a country that was not their own. And said, I'm going to make you a nation. And you're going to be a blessing to everyone. And now he's going to use another person. That person is Moses. He is going to be the one that is the central figure, the central personality in the book of Exodus. God has always called people. God has always used people. I'm not Moses, and I'm not Abraham, and I'm not Noah. But here's what I do know from the book of Exodus and other places, of course, that God uses people. And he uses people in many different ways, many different circumstances. In this case, it is Moses who he uses to have his will disseminated to the people. We even look at the law and we say the law of Moses. Actually, the New Testament does that also. We also see in the second part that when we talk about going from a family to a nation, we now have Israel being established as a theocratic kingdom. That may be a new word for you, but all it simply means is Moses wasn't king. Moses wasn't judge and jury, even though he did a lot of those things that cover those areas. Theocratic kingdom means God is the king. 
He is the one that we ultimately answer to. And the book of Exodus makes that clear, especially for the nation of Israel. They wanted a king, and God eventually said, okay, I'll give you a king, and you're going to regret it. And, of course, they got Saul, and they absolutely regretted it. It is also the preparation for worship. A lot of times we have an idea, I'm going to go to church and then I'll worship. There is more than that. It is the whole life, and God makes some very specific things clear in the book of Exodus. That worship, I already mentioned this, is not haphazard, and it's not about my feelings necessarily, nothing wrong with feelings, because the New Testament goes so far as to say that we don't worship at a specific place, but we worship in spirit and in truth. There also always had to be a spirit, your personal Spirit behind it has to mean something, and it does have emotion with it, but it's also based on truth. Ultimately, the tabernacle and the system of worship that is given to us in the book of Exodus points to the finished work of Jesus Christ that always will, always has. There is also this system of morals and ethics. How do I treat my neighbor? How do I interact? How do, by the time the end of Exodus, we have at least two million people, could be a few more than that, but how do they interact without killing each other? The Bible's very clear. Hey, you don't murder your neighbor. Uh, And by the way, you don't commit adultery with his spouse. You don't do those things. The Bible is going to give us morals and ethics that are in principle, but they were absolutely under the law and they were carried out and they had a penalty attached to them if you did not carry them out. The law was in essence in that form an external restraint on the behavior of sinful mankind. And then we see the link between God's promise to Abraham and to Israel, that is Jacob, that he was going to make them a great nation. We see that happening, not in great circumstances, not in ideal circumstances, but under oppression and slavery. God's will is not hampered by what the world does, by people trying to put you down. In fact, is I will suggest to you ahead of time that sometimes in the hardest times in your life, that's when you understand and see God working in ways greater than under normal circumstances. And we can see those things. Now, let's go to the text. We're in uh, Exodus chapter 1, verse 1, and we're going to continue from there. We all have a history. Every one of you, if I ask you who you are, tell me a little bit about you. You know what you would do? I don't know what you would do. But here's what I would do, because I've heard most of your testimonies. I would say, I'm Paul Malfair. I grew up on a farm. I used to work construction. And if you want to know why I act a little bit that way, and I have a hobby that gets grease under my fingernails, you, you know what? I'm going to tell you things about me from the past. That's going to tell you a few things about who I am today, because there's, not, there's no other pastor that's like me. By the way, I didn't say that's a good thing. I just said that's the truth. Nobody else is like me. Guess what? No one else is like you. 
All of us have a history. And with the nation of Israel, that is true. There were many things that God had promised and many things that had happened before the book of Exodus that made them who they were. For example, back in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, is one of those verses, if you haven't memorized it, as soon as I quote it, you're going to know it. It just simply says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him unto him as righteousness. But it goes on to say, uh, God said to Abraham, Know for certain that your descendants will be, notice this, this is a promise, years and years before it happened, will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. There they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. Then on the fourth generation they shall return here. Abraham was in the promised land, what we call Israel today. He was there and he said, you know what, I can tell you what's going to happen ahead of time. Way ahead of time. They're going to be enslaved. He doesn't say Egypt here. He just says in a country that's not theirs. And so they knew ahead of time that some things were going to happen. And those things that shape our lives start long before today or the next thing that happens to us. In fact is, in Genesis chapter 46, this is Jacob, Israel. He, if you remember the story from the book of Genesis, there was a famine all over the world. Only in Egypt was there food because God had sent someone, Joseph, ahead of time, and he had the wisdom from God to be able to store food up for seven years, uh, and there was food there, and his brothers went down. You know all the story. They came back, and finally, uh, Joseph revealed himself and said, okay, bring my dad down here. It's going to be, you know, a long time before there's enough food, so come on down here, and so Jacob was very hesitant because he knew God had promised him the land that we call Israel, he had been promised that. And God has to come to him and say, I am God, the God of your father, and do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. So now we know where the place is. For I will make you a great nation there. Notice. Peter and I started having this discussion. I'm like, okay, when did they really become a nation? Was it after the, the Ten Commandments and Mount Sinai? And then I found this verse and I'm like, oh, yeah. He said, no, while you're there, you will become a great nation. And as I was studying chapter 1, I realized why this was true. In fact, is God said to him uh, at that same time, I will go down there with you. Notice they are not in a foreign land on their own. God is going with them to Egypt, and I will surely bring you up again, and Joseph will close your eyes. Remember, Joseph was his favorite son. You're going to go down there. You're going to meet your son. And uh, you're going to come back out of there. And fact is, Joseph is still going to be alive when you die. Now, I blew this in the early service. Peter straightened me out. I said a lot of times, and I think of, when we talk about Israel, I don't think Egypt. I don't think Africa. But let's face it. Egypt is in the continent of Africa. So think about this. They are out of the Middle East into Africa. And that's what I said. And Peter said, I looked it up. I Googled it while you're preaching. Boy, that's a really sad thing we have nowadays. Pastors can get held accountable while they're up here. But guess what? 
I was half true, half true, half right and half wrong. It is, Egypt is actually considered, at least the Nile Delta part of it, is considered part of the Fertile Crescent. And so while it's in the continent of Africa, it's still considered the Middle East because it's a part of the Fertile Crescent. So it's right in there. But they're not in the promised land. God didn't promise them Egypt. And Egypt is still where it is to, uh, was back then, where it is today. And the red dot there is the land of Goshen. That is where Joseph told them to go when they came. Remember, the Egyptians did not like Joseph's family. Not because of their personality or anything like that. They were shepherds. And they didn't like shepherds. They were low class. And so, Joseph, being the shrewd guy that he was, had them sent to Goshen. Guess what Goshen is? It is the most productive part of Egypt. The Nile comes up, waters the place, and it's fertile and all those kinds of things. And so, he settles them in the best part of the land. And remember, not only did Joseph have a reputation, he had a really good reputation in Egypt because of what he had done, but his brothers also had a good reputation. Remember, by the time the end of the famine is over, how much of Egypt did the government own? All of it, that's right. All the land and all the cattle and the people owned everything. Well, guess what? Somebody needs to take care of the cattle. Guess what they did? They gave them (coughs) to Joseph's brothers to take care of. And so all of the riches are entrusted to this tribe, this family, which is now becoming more numerous and becoming stronger. And it's very interesting. So Joseph had a good reputation, but so did his family. They didn't like them as a people because they separated from them, but they did have a good reputation. Now it continues on, and I am not going to read the text. There will be times when I read the text, but I'm only going to put parts of it up here because I want to cover a lot of territory. And so all the people who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number, but Joseph was already there. Here's what you're going to find. Three different places in the Bible, you're going to find three different sets of numbers. One place it's going to say 66. Another place it's going to say 70. And another place it's going to say 75. We'll talk about those later. But the point is, is it wrong? Are there contradictions in the Bible? The answer is no. It all depends how you uh, number them. In the case of 66, Joseph already was there. And that's what it makes makes clear here, but Joseph was already in Egypt, and that makes the 70, him and his sons. And what happened there? Verse 7, the sons of Israel were, notice these words, do not miss them. The sons of Israel were fruitful, increased greatly, multiplied, became exceedingly mighty, so that the land was filled with them. Here's what happened, is They're not under slavery yet. They've been given the best of the land. They've been given great responsibility. They have a good reputation. And they are like, and this is the only way I can describe it, it's like starting your plants in a greenhouse. There's no war to kill off the men. 
They're not fighting wars anymore or anything like that. They are just multiplying. Sorry, was it Bugs Bunny that said they're like rabbits, you know, multiplying, not just adding? Well, they were multiplying. And not only in number, but also they were successful. And they were strong. They had resources that they could use. And they used them. It's making Pharaoh nervous. And why is it really making Pharaoh nervous? The next verse. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. That's where I got my title from. Things are a-changing. Because before that, everything was okay. There was no real problem. Yes, they weren't Egyptians. They were Semites. But there was no real problem. They were separated. No big issue. But now, and and I don't know exactly what it means, a new king who didn't know Joseph. Did he just simply not know his name? Or did he not know his reputation? Or was his reputation kind of a lost thing? Don't really know. It doesn't really tell us. All I know is the appreciation for what Joseph had done and Joseph's family is gone at this point. And so things are absolutely a-changing. God's people have always been a target of opposition and oppression. It's always been true. In fact is, at this point, Pharaoh starts making everyday life unbearable and bitter and miserable. You can read it there. Why? Because he put them under hard labor. He thought he could break their spirit. That didn't happen. Remember, God already made a promise. I'm going to make you a great nation down there in Egypt. And if God makes a promise, guess what? He doesn't break it. He fulfills it. That's what he always does. And so what they did is they made them do hard labor, hoping that would kind of break their spirit, wear them down, just cause them to give up and quit. And so they wouldn't be a threat anymore. By the way, the threat was not the Israelites, the family of Jacob, are going to rise up and take over the government. Nope, that was never their threat. What they believed at this point was that if an enemy of Egypt came along, they would side with the enemy of Egypt, and Egypt would be overpowered, and Israel could exit the place. That's exactly what it says, that that they're going to leave. They had found a source of labor, and they didn't want to give it up. It was one of their resources that they're now using, and they didn't want to give it up. And so they make them do that. But then they go beyond that. And this is the one where we kind of have the meat of my sermon this morning. And that is, not only was it everyday life, you had to work hard as a slave, oppression. But now he is going to make life unbearable for families. It's not just on the outside. It's not just work. Now he's meddling with the family unit, and he is trying to kill all the baby boys. That gets very personal. When you start doing that, listen, listen, we usually think of guys be the fighters, but you start messing with the children, you don't want to mess with mama bear at all. You just don't want to do that. Well, Pharaoh, 
I don't know. He didn't get the message someplace. But the cities that they were to build, and this I found to be fascinating. This is our introduction to religion in Egypt. In Egypt, they worship many gods. The first one, and by the way, the reason I'm only bringing these two up now, we'll see others later, but uh, these two gods had cities that were built in their honor. They're the storage cities that Israel was forced to build by the Egyptians. And they named them after their gods. Pithom was the number one god. He was not the most important, but he was considered the creator god. He literally, according to their mythology, he created himself out of water. He self-created. And... uh, Because of him, all the other gods came. He was not the most important, but he was the first. And he's the one that created Egypt to start with, according to them. And if you think this gender and sexual confusion is something new, mm -mm. he was, and he was embodiment of, and the essence of, and the capabilities of both sexes. So he was confused, confused, and confused. So you think the stuff that's going on now is new? Not new, and when you look down through, whether it was the Egyptian gods, or the Roman gods, the Greek gods, or whatever, or the Babylonian gods, they were all messed up. In this case, the one who created himself is messed up because he's both male and female. Uh, I'm not sure all what that means. I don't think they knew that either. But one of these cities that the Israelites were forced to build was named in honor of their number one God. The second city, Ramses, uh, was in honor of Re or Ra, uh, however you pronounce that. He was the sun God. He was considered the number one God. Not the first, but the number one most important God. And they believed he was the sun God. They believed that every night another God, the God Nut, uh, Goddess Nut, I should say, uh, would swallow him up And then he would disappear, and the next morning he'd be reborn again. Listen, folks, theology has always had life, death, rebirth. It's always been there, every false religion. Why? Because they're all an imitation of the real that had been known for hundreds and hundreds of years. It's just a perversion of that, and the... uh, Egyptians are no different than that. And can you imagine? This is something that the people that are against God's people always do. They try to change the names. Remember Daniel? We remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Guess what? Those are their Babylonian names. They're not their real names. Because God, uh, the, the pe- people that are the enemies of God will do whatever they can do to change the conversation, to change the names and make it confusing. If you don't think that is, if you think that's something new, read the book of Exodus because they they did it back then. Read the book of Daniel. It doesn't matter where you read. But anyway, the midwives, as you know the story, you probably heard it ever since you're three years old, the midwives were told by God and they were commanded by God. I'm sorry. Yeah, Pharaoh was God, but that's not who commanded it. Pharaoh commanded them that when they go to help the mothers who are giving birth, that if it's a baby boy, they are to kill the boys and let the, the girls live. That was a direct 
command by Pharaoh. Remember, he's scared. They are getting mighty, they're getting strong, they're getting numerous, and he is afraid of a rebellion against him. And he orders them, when you go to do that, don't let the baby boys live. That is not abortion. That's a step further. By the way, we're back to that in the United States, that you can actually kill a baby after they're born. And you don't know if it's a baby boy or a girl until they're almost the whole way out. And how they were to kill them, I don't know. It doesn't tell us exactly how they were supposed to do that. But uh, isn't that a gruesome thing? You're a midwife. Your life is dedicated to the miracle of birth. And now you're said, told that you have to kill them. Now, we're going to talk about a few things that I wish I didn't have to talk about, but we're going to do it real quickly, is that they simply did not do as the king had commanded them, but let the boys live. This is a purposeful, willful statement that's written here in the Bible. It's not an accident. It's not, well, maybe it was, you know, they just slow walked it a little bit or the, the, the excuse they give later, maybe that's true. If, you, if that was true, then they didn't need midwives to start with. But here's the key. and Notice what I did. But the midwives feared God. Now, you may disagree with what I'm going to say in part of the sermon here, and that's okay. You can do that. I just challenge you to go back and study for yourself. But even if you don't believe that the midwives lied or deceived the king, the pharaoh, uh, here's what I know. They were blessed not because of deceit or lie. They were blessed because they put God first. In fact, is in the New Testament, we know this because Peter says, uses the same principle. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but when they told Peter he has to stop preaching, he said, here's what I know. We must obey God rather than men. That is not a new principle with Peter. It was true. The Hebrew midwives also knew that, and we will look at a few other people who absolutely practiced that principle. And so they get called back in. Now, can you imagine, put your your sanctified imagination on, you see women carrying around, you go, well, that's a boy. Or you see a little kid running around, maybe he's a year old, he's still toddling around. It's like, hold it a second. There shouldn't be any boys this age. They should all be killed. So he calls them back in and says, and he doesn't think that there's a mistake here. He says, why have you done this thing and let the boys live? He goes, you purposely did this. And they give what I believe is deceitful, a half-truth, or a lie. Whatever you want to see it, I believe it's a lie. Uh, A justifiable lie. You'll see why I say that in a minute. Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. So they come back and say, you know what? We we couldn't help this. They they give birth before we could get there. And I believe there were way more than two midwives. Um, There were probably two million people. And a midwife would be totally worthless if she lived in the southern part of Goshen and the birth was taking place in the northern part or even halfway. Uh, the birth would be long gone. If you, did, if you had midwives, it meant you needed them. They weren't just some superfluous kind of thing. And so they're just saying, well, hey, you know what? The, the, the Israeli women don't need us and they give birth anyway. I don't believe the king believed that for a second. He doesn't punish them because it's kind of hard to uh, 
punish somebody when you cannot prove it unless he'd been there and seen it actually happen. He was not a firsthand witness. And uh, so he doesn't punish them, but he's not happy about it either. And uh, we just need to remember, they were rewarded because of their faith, because of what they did, not because of what they said. I personally believe, and I I cannot prove this from the Bible, so you have to understand what I'm saying next is the midwives, by the way, their names mean brilliant and glitter. They were, were, you know, people that had a happy job. They they helped people give birth, and birth is always a celebration time. And uh, they were told to turn that into a bloody mess. And uh, God blesses them. I believe they may have been barren women who had the privilege of just helping others. And it says in the end that God blessed them and gave them families of their own. Maybe they were not married, but uh, it, it doesn't, you just can't know exactly. But the point is, God did bless them. You say, you kind of sounded like you justified lying. Well, I'm going to tell you, if you ever, even once in your life, justify lying, that's probably going to be the only time in your life. People go, hold it a second. You teach us, thou shalt not bear false witness. Don't tell a lie. Don't deceive. Don't do any of these things. You're absolutely right. The norm is absolutely that. But there are those things, and I'm going to show you four four things here, and I'm going to do it really quickly, that there were lies that were straight-out lies that God did not give any reprimand to. I believe this is one of them. But a lie is almost always, and I'm not going to read my definition there. I'll probably bring it back up some other time. But a lie is normally taught, used so you can get away with something or make an excuse for your own bad behavior. Or it's almost always selfish or self-centered. But I don't know what you believe, but I know what the Bible teaches, that self-defense is something that is also biblical. I can show you that from the book of Exodus when we get there. You know what? The law calls that justifiable homicide. I hope no one ever has to defend themselves or someone else to the point they take someone else's life. I hope that's never true. Nobody ever wants that. But if it would happen, it's called justifiable homicide. There are people, somebody years ago said, I was an undercover narc uh, for the police. Was I, was I sinning the whole time I was undercover? The answer, I, I had an answer for them is, no, you were deceiving and lying to people the whole time. But you weren't doing it for yourself. You were doing it so I can walk down the street safely. Uh, and those things. What about spies? The whole thing is, there are those things And they are very, very out of the norm that are different than the rest. That's all I'm going to tell you, and I'll show you why here in a second. The first one is Michael, David's wife. Saul was coming to kill him. I don't have these in order, but Saul was going to come to kill him. She lets him down through a window, and they come to, uh, and he escapes. So he's gone. Remember, she's the one that said that. Saul's messengers show up. She says, hey, he's sick, he's in bed, and she had put it, made the bed look like he was in bed. The point is, and result is, um, Saul figured it out eventually and said, why have you deceived me? Let my enemy go. She is never 
uh, disciplined or reprimanded for that. And then there's Jonathan. Remember, they're best buddies. And Jonathan is Saul's son. And he's trying to kill David because Jonathan knows David's going to be the next king. Saul also knows that. Saul was insecure. He wants to get rid of David. And uh, Jonathan's like, no, I understand he's the next king, and I, I recognize that, and we're buddies. And so what does he do? They, they're to go to a banquet. David doesn't show up, and he says to Jonathan, hey, you know, where's David? He says, well, he talked to me. It, it, it's all good. He went to Bethlehem because they were going to offer family sacrifices and those kinds of things and see his brothers and stuff. The only thing is, we know from the story David's not even close to Bethlehem. He's not even heading to Bethlehem. He's in the field behind the palace. And after they find out, you know that uh, Jonathan goes out and uh, through a series of things warns David, don't come, get out of here. He had totally, completely lied to his dad. He got found out. Then there's the book of Joshua. This one here even goes a step further because you know the woman. She was Rahab. She was, some people call her an innkeeper. She might have had an inn, but she also had uh, extra services at her inn. She was a prostitute. And uh, so this woman took in the spies. These are Israeli spies. They come in and they come looking for them. And she says, oh yeah, they came here, but I don't know where they went. Meantime, what had she done? Left them down over the side of the the wall, eventually she does that. But meanwhile, she had hidden them um, and uh, upstairs in, on, on the top of the, the roof. And so not only does she lie to them and said, hey, they left and I don't know where they went, but she said, pursue them quickly and you'll overtake them. She not only lied to them and deceived them, but she also sent them on a wild goose chase. Um, and so she went even further yet. The point is, God never says, These people were honored because they lied. Could have they told the truth and God protected them? Probably. God can do that. I don't know. It doesn't tell us one way or the other. All I know is that it does seem that under absolute, and I mean minute, circumstances, that God said, fearing him, living by faith, doing what is right and moral and ethical is above and beyond obeying the authorities. That's the bottom line. That's all I can tell you. If you have a different view, that's, that's totally fine with me. But I believe I can back that up from Scripture 100%. Remember, you, they were never blessed by God. By the way, Rahab is in the genealogy of Jesus. She's in the hall of faith in Hebrews. These people did what was a higher, uh, operated at a higher calling than what the world expected of them. Will it ever happen to you? Probably not. Could it? Yeah, it could. I just encourage you to look at the scripture, but let me do it quick. Lying is normally wrong. Let's face it, any attempt to deceive is a lie. And even withholding information is that way. Those of you that are pastors, I know there's a couple here. You know what? We have a privilege in the United States called confidentiality and privacy. I can't go home and tell my wife a lot of things I know. And I won't tell you. 
I'll quit before, before I'll tell you things because I know stuff that nobody else should know. It's willful ignorance on my part. Is it lying? You, you discern that. Justifying things may be different than the norm, and I already went over that, but there is that possibility that I have to go and live at a higher standard than, than the norm. Is, uh, and make sure you understand that if you, at one time in your life, I don't think it's going to ever happen to you more than maybe once, if it ever happens, you have to understand, you get caught, you could pay a huge price for doing that. And you could. The consequences could be very high. And they very much could be. Well, guess what? So the babies are living. Israel's getting mightier. <laughs> they keep growing. Pharaoh is frustrated and scared. So you know what he does? He puts out an APB, all points bulletin, all Egyptian people are now working in his SS. You see a baby boy running around. You see a mom carrying a baby boy. And she's an Israelite. You take that baby and you take that baby and you throw him in the Nile River. As far as I know, babies can't swim. (laughs) Even little kids can't swim. You know what? They're dead. And guess what? Everybody... All the Egyptians are now against those that they rub shoulders with that are Jacob's family, now becoming a nation. And you're to cast them in to the Nile. Can you imagine? He is that desperate that he turns every Egyptian into one of his spies and one of his henchmen and one of his executors. I'll tell you what. There are other places in history that this has happened. This is the first one I know about. What do we learn from this? Why why does it matter to me? Fearing God comes first. Living by faith is above and beyond everything. Our government has rules that say you can do all kinds of wrong things and uh, I don't need to participate. But every now and then, and it may come to this. I don't know that it is now, but it could come to this. The government says, you cannot do whatever. You know, we fight these things all the time. You cannot speak in public. You know, you can't stand for for truth. Those things can come. You're going to have to decide someday where you stand. Do you stand with God, who is the high authority? He is the king. Remember, we may be citizens of the United States, and we most I guess most of us are, but we are citizens of another country. And our allegiance is first, foremost, and forever to God. This is sobering stuff. It was sobering to them, and it ought to be sobering to us because we need to keep our eyes fixed in the proper place. And it's not, what can I get away with, but what does God demand of me? At what level do I live? Do I live above the circumstances? Do I fear God more than I fear the king? Which is, in essence, what the midwives had to decide. And they decided, we fear God. We reverence. We place our all in God, not in Pharaoh, who, by the way, was also a god in Egypt. We serve the God above the God of Egypt. And that's where we live. 
I challenge you that all of us have those things where we compromise and we let things slide, things that we do. Challenge. I said Moses was the main person, but today it's the midwives. They chose to live at the highest standard. Pharaoh could have had him executed. He could have easily done that. He didn't, but God blessed him. I propose to you that living by faith, living at God's standard is the only place to live. Let's all stand together. Father, thank you so much. This is not an easy lesson. It's one that can be easily misunderstood and somebody can take it and use it wrongly. But Lord, we have an obligation to show exactly what you say, to let the story stand on its own. And whether it's the midwives or Jonathan or Rahab, it's irrelevant which one it is. But they all lived at a standard that was higher than what someone, in most cases the authorities, told them to do. Lord, I pray that we would always live at the highest standard, God's standard, and not allow the world to dictate to us, especially when it's against the things that we know to be absolutely true. Lord, help us to put that into practice in our own lives. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. Go with God and be careful when you drive home.